I call it an ill-conceived, hasty withdrawal, and it really turned into an emergency American retreat. Same reason we went to Vietnam, we went there to support those people, and we left them no better than when we got there 20 years ago. Well, I just read that uh, about 6,000 people in town are out of power for the seventh day. What sort of utility is running an operation like this? I'm tired of hearing, uh, you know, about the trees and this, that, and the other thing. You're listening to Pod Sui, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The country of Afghanistan fell to the Taliban in a matter of days after intelligence sources predicted that it would take weeks or months. Horrific images of desperate Afghans clinging to planes at the airport in Kabul filled our television screens this week leading many to ask, why was the U.S.'s withdrawal so poorly planned and executed? Retired four-star General Jack Keane joined Guy Gordon to break down what went so horribly wrong. The fact that it was an unconditional withdrawal is really the problem with the operation that we're seeing before our eyes. And I will say, um, the Trump administration at least had, had made a declaration uh, that if they did pull the forces out, uh, in 2021, they would have a conditioned withdrawal. And, and what am I talking about here? Well, condition one should be the Taliban does not take over the country and, you know, collapse the government and uh, run the security forces off. Uh, and that would, would have required not leaving by 31 August, because the problem with 31 August is, is that we had to close seven military bases in Afghanistan, and some of them were sprawling bases like Bagram. And the focus is entirely on closing those bases and moving the resources out. There was no assistance being provided to the Afghan security forces in terms of intelligence, ISR drones, and decisive U.S. air power. Why? Because we were closing bases and pulling that, all of that out of there. Right. So if the condition had been we don't want a Taliban takeover, we had we would have had to pull bring in additional forces right away after the withdrawal decision was made to make certain that we could pull forces out but still provide support to the Afghans. Why didn't so they not, why didn't they follow that that game plan? Why did they abandon they, that? Uh, the I think the administration um, believed that the sooner they got out of there, the better. Remember, they declared the 9-11 day, didn't realize that the symbology of that yeah. was uh, absolutely shameful. And then they reversed to uh, 31 August. If they were really thinking through uh, a successful withdrawal operations with all the ramifications and implica- implications an unsuccessful one would have, they would have recognized that 31 August should have been extended. And why? Because the fighting season in Afghanistan, well known for all these 20 years, is March, April. It begins and ends in the fall uh, when when the first snows start to come in the winter. The Taliban leaves the battlefield and goes back to Afghanistan with some exceptions. And then there's no fighting again until the following March or April. Well, that being the case, it's during those winter months that we should have pulled the forces out so we could continue to provide decisive air support and intelligence for the uh, Afghan security forces all through the, this oncoming fighting season, which the Taliban decided you know, was going to be likely to be their, their most critical one, and they were pouring everything into it at a time when the Afghan security forces you know, had no support you know, whatsoever. They psychologically Im- 
imploded as a result of not having support that they've counted on in, in the past. Uh, and, and that is principally the reason for this. So I, I call it an ill-conceived, hasty withdrawal that had no conditions associated with it. And it really turned into an emergency American retreat. So we... And, We've heard and from anybody some, looking at that is unsatisfied. Certainly. Oh yeah. So so we've we've heard from some veterans saying though that they're not surprised that the Afghans that they were training were not committed, uh, that they were not highly motivated, uh, that they didn't seem to have uh, anything other than a regard for a paycheck when they were dealing with them. So they felt that there was a lack of will on the part of the Afghan security forces. Is that a fair the assessment? Afghan security forces. I mean, I spent a lot of time with them myself. Yeah. Uh, when we were doing the Afghan surge, uh, General Petraeus was put in in charge uh, after uh, General McChrystal uh, uh, left, and he asked me to help him. So we were applying the surge forces. I was watching the Afghans and the U.S. fight down the Argadam Valley and up in Singan District where the Marines were. And some of the fiercest fighting I had seen ever uh, in, um, in Iraq and also in my time as a platoon and company commander. In, in Vietnam, it was downright uh, tough, dirty infantry fighting close in. And, and, and that was fierce fighting. I hadn't seen anything like that in Afghanistan quite on that scale before. The Afghans were with us side by side in that fight. And they were watching what we did. I mean, they were not us, uh, but they were, they were performing adequately in my judgment. I paid a lot of attention to them. But that was a long time ago. That was back, right. you know, in 2010 and 2011. And, be, and that was before we, we stopped our own combat operations in 2014. Over the past 20 years, the United States has spent over $2 trillion and lost over 3,000 soldiers in the fight against the Taliban. Retired Army Ranger John Blackstone served in Afghanistan during Operation Enduring Freedom, and he gave Chris Renwick a brutally honest assessment of the U.S.'s pullout, and he questions what kind of impact the mission ended up having on the Afghan people. You know, same reason we went to Vietnam. We went there to support those people, and we left them no better than when we got there 20 years ago. Now, President Joe Biden said on Monday that he was struck with an agreement made between former President Donald Trump and the Taliban and kept his word on a campaign promise to withdraw U.S. forces from Afghanistan. Major Blackstone says the administration isn't to blame any more than any other president who's led during this conflict. Listen here. This has actually been going on for over 20 years. So to sit here and say that it was one previous past president would not be a true statement. It's been going on for the last three or four presidents. We've seen the chaotic scenes all across the country, specifically at the Kabul airport, where so many people are trying to flee the country, even holding on to aircraft wings as they take off from the runways uh, in, an, in, a, in an effort to escape the country before the Taliban rule settles in. I asked Major Blackstone to tell me about the people there that he encountered, the civilians uh, who he came across during his service in the Middle East. Here's what he said. Most of the people that we dealt with were kind-hearted, good-souled people. Um, they want nothing more than what we want. We want peace. We want to live and enjoy our lives. And uh, that people are people no matter what. And most of the people are very, very good and kind. I, I, you know, I didn't look at anybody as an enemy unless they were shooting at me. And while Major Blackstone says he does believe, in fact, the correct maneuver is to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan. 
He says he shudders to think about what is going to happen to those Afghan people who supported the United States and their efforts in the country over the last uh, you know, two decades there, and they have not been able to escape successfully. The U.S.'s hasty pullout of Afghanistan has left thousands of Afghan people, refugees forced with the decision to flee the country or face brutal retribution from the Taliban. Nolan Finley from the Detroit News has an idea on how we can help a large number of them locally. And there's, you know, there's a lot of room for Detroit to grow. And, you know, we got something like if, if this is successful, we'll have 20 or 30,000 new residents coming from Afghanistan. I think Detroit should put a bid on uh, taking as many of them as they can. He was on with Kevin Dietz to break down the latest census numbers, and they do not spell good news for Detroit or the state of Michigan. Yeah, I mean, Michigan grew, but not enough. Uh, it was one of six states that will have to give up a congressional seat to faster-growing uh, states. And, you know, that's what I took a look, took a look at it in my column. Uh, you know, where should that seat come from? And if you look at where the population loss came from, uh, it's hard to... It would be hard to justify taking that seat from anywhere but southeastern Michigan. And my uh, suggestion is that it, sh- it should come from Detroit. The city lost 75,000 people. Yeah, oh, maybe maybe the Upper Peninsula, they lost some people too, but I don't think that's quite going to work out that way. Well, they won't, uh, this... they won't, it's hard to take a seat from there because there are only one seat. Now, they are going to have to stretch that first district line way down but you know my contention is i've felt this for a long time you know census district after this draw will be about seven hundred sixty thousand people detroit i think comes out what at about 635 666 or something in that line it it would fit perfectly within a single congressional district it would make almost a single congressional district by itself if you throw in a couple of other communities. There is no justification for splitting Detroit in two. And, and what would that do to the current uh, setup? Well, if you look at these 13th and 14th districts, they're the most oddly shaped districts in the state. You want to talk about gerrymandering. These things have been drawn to go snake through all, you know, they both conclude, include a big chunk of Detroit. Then they've been draw, drawn to snake through the suburbs to pick up pockets of black voters here and there it's going to be harder this time because so many black voters have moved out of detroit to different places and they're more spread out throughout the community uh you know i think it's going to be harder to get to majority minority districts out of out of detroit i think if you follow the dictates of our new redistricting law uh which says people should be grouped in communities of interest um, it would make sense to put Detroit in its own com- single congressional district. Right now, I mean, Detroit and Gross Point are in the same district. Uh, Detroit and Western Wayne County are in the same district. It's hard to see those as uh, communities of shared interest. Now, Mayor Duggan uh, said he wants to pursue legal challenges. He doesn't believe the count. Uh, you know, he says that uh, it was the the getting the count by mail and phone and online was a disadvantage to Detroit, that the pandemic caused all kinds of problems and the whole thing should just be thrown out possibly in, in a recount. Um, do you think there would be much difference if, if, if they scrapped this thing and, and recounted? Or do you think Detroit is still going to be smaller than it was 10 years ago? Well, it's definitely smaller. And it was 
10 years ago, no matter how you count it. I don't know that there's any constitutional basis for um, filling out a census. census. I'm not even sure that's possible. It's always challenged, and sometimes they go back and they'll add some sort of multiplier to try to even out the undercount, which, you know, I've always been opposed to. I think, you know, the the Constitution calls for a headcount, not an estimate. I mean, why go through this whole process if all you're going to do in the end is estimate? But, you know, I, I'm certain that Detroit was undercounted. It's always undercounted, so are other communities. But there hasn't been... Uh, a really effective remedy for that in the past, and I doubt there will be this time, Gavin. DTE and Consumers Energy finally got power back on to over 700,000 customers who lost power after two heavy storms socked the Metro Detroit area on August 11th. Paul Eisenstein covers autos for the Detroit Bureau and like hundreds of thousands of area residents. His power outage stretched into early this week, and he has dealt with power outages for an estimated 15 days since mid-June. With the country making a push towards electric vehicles, Eisenstein wonders if the current grid will be able to handle all that new demand. He voices concern on the Paul W. Smith Show. Long outages have become the norm, not the exception. You can expect at least one or two multi-day outages. Uh, any year. And it, it's inconvenient. Uh, invariably, people wind up having to throw out lots of food. Uh, you have hassles. The number of people putting in generators, spending, you know, some cases $10,000 for generators, just because we can't trust uh, a utility that isn't very much of a utility, uh, is a problem. And you mentioned something very important in, in your opening. Uh, there's the question about wanting to own electric vehicles when you can't be guaranteed that you'll be able to charge them. Well, it just occurred to me, you obviously called Ann and said you were mad as hell and not going to take it anymore, so here you are on the show. But when I think of you, I think of cars, and then I think, well, wait a second, you know, there might be a point here in terms of, you know, a lot of people took out, went out to their gas-powered car, those prehistoric things, and yeah. plugged in their phones to charge their phones. Uh, right. And unless you have a Ford pickup truck with that fabulous generator feature on board, uh, people would have been uh, caught without power in their house and without the ability to communicate because they couldn't charge their phone in their car that would be dead if we had all electric vehicles. Well, I just read that uh, about 6,000 people in town are out of power for the seventh day today. Uh, what sort of utility is 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 running an operation like this. And I have talked to some people in the industry. Uh, when you compare our situation with neighboring states, we have much higher outage rates than states that have very similar weather. I'm tired of hearing, uh, you know, about the trees and this, that, and the other thing. The fact is uh, we have a very poorly run utility as far as I'm concerned. And some of the data I've talked with people in the industry tell me it just supports my argument. But this is a real issue. I've talked to a couple of the automakers about this. And, you know, here they are. They're, they're trying to sell electric vehicles, and they're trying to get high demand in their home market. And I know at least two people in Pleasant Ridge who had been considering buying EVs in the next year to 18 months, and they have both said that they're putting it off now. They're probably not going to do it because they don't have reliable power. Well, there's been a great deal of concern about the grid and the power, and not just DTE, but consumers and anybody else out there that's providing power, offshoots of companies that have come along. 
that uh, have been uh, greatly concerned about 2030 when supposedly every car will be sold that will be an EV, electric vehicle, if we can handle it. That'll do it for Podsui this week. For full interviews or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.